The opening round of the MLS Cup playoffs kick off this weekend. Four matches on Saturday, October the 19th, and a pair of games on Sunday. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame, with a two-part preview of those matches with writers and broadcasters from across the country. Top seeds New York City FC in the East and LAFC in the West, both getting buys into the conference semifinals. In this episode, we'll focus first on the Eastern Conference. Defending MLS Cup champions Atlanta United, they host the New England Revolution. Pro Soccer USA's Chris Furmeister, he covers Atlanta, and Julian Cardillo with New England, they'll be here. The I-95 rivalry, the Philadelphia Union, home to the New York Red Bulls. Joe Tanzi is Pro Soccer USA's beat writer for the Union, and Dylan Butler covers the Red Bulls for both PSUSA and MLS Soccer. They'll pair up for their thoughts on this one. And Christian Jack is a studio analyst for Toronto FC on TSN. He'll be here as the Reds will host DC United at BMO Field in round one. Pro Soccer USA's Emily Olsen. She'll have the United side of things. New York City FC finished six points clear of second place Atlanta and nine points in front of number three Philadelphia. And City expected to be fully fit for their match on October the 23rd. Injuries to Eber, Ishmael, to Jerry Schrade, and Keaton Parks are expected to be healed. So New York City awaits the winner of the 4-5 game, D.C. United at TFC. That'll be at either Yankee Stadium or City Field. First up in our special on-frame playoff preview episode, in the East, second-ranked Atlanta United will meet number 7, the New England Revolution. A big part of the intrigue in this one is in this opening round match, they just played each other on decision day, the regular season finale on October 6th. Uh, that was won by Atlanta United 3-1. Atlanta and New England have now played each other five times. New England still looking for their first win. They are 0-3 at Mercedes-Benz or in Atlanta, and that's the site of uh, this match uh, on the weekend. With us to take a closer look, uh, the Pro Soccer USA beat writers for both clubs, Chris Furmeister for Atlanta United, Julian Cardillo uh, at New England. Uh, welcome back to both of you, Chris. Uh, Atlanta, the defending MLS Cup champs, I guess they've not always looked the part this season, their first year under Frank DeBoer. But uh, before we get into some of the nuance, how about the thing that's right in front of our face, the return of Joseph Martinez for the last game, uh, he was listed as questionable. Well, he started, assists on the opening goal three minutes in, scores a game winner. Uh, when it looked like at one point this season that knee injury uh, might keep him out, you know, but most thought at least a little bit longer, if not this season. So uh, it, it, has he reached a legendary status beyond his original legendary status just by coming back from this injury? Yeah, I mean, Joseph is his ability to come back from injuries has proven to be just as impressive as all of his other abilities, it seems like. Um, and it continues his his build the statue status. Atlanta fans are chanting that basically every week now because he keeps doing things that keeps encouraging them to want a set of Joseph Martinez outside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Um, when he was injured, it was against the San Jose Earthquakes. It it looked bad. Uh, Frank DeBoer initially expected him to be out for several weeks. Um, and that's, I think, what everybody was thinking. But he came back. He missed two games. Uh, and it's, I spoke to someone on the team who didn't know how long he was going to be out yet, but was not really all that concerned because 
as he said, Joseph is a maniac. He just he rehabs injuries faster than anybody. He, he just I don't know how he does it, but earlier this year he suffered an adductor injury in training that everybody thought was going to it was going to keep him out for a few weeks, and he missed one midweek game. He was back in the lineup the next weekend. Um, so yeah, his, his ability to come back from injury has been. I mean, it's vital because without Joseph Martinez, Atlanta United is not Atlanta United. No, I guess the question, he's scored just under half of their goals with 27, just under half. So, and then next on the list of of goal scorers for Atlanta, Julian Gressel, and with a goal and an assist against New England in that decision day game, which was huge because I guess he'd been nursing something with the knee. And then Pitti Martinez, he also has five goals. So, it's almost like if Martinez is not there, you really can't uh, call Atlanta United's chances to repeat very good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's – and I, I think you would say that for any team. If you take their best player off, that their chances to, to win a championship are going to go down. But it does – I mean, losing Joseph Martinez it would be a catastrophic blow for Atlanta. It's After he suffered that injury against San Jose, we were talking to – Darlington Nagby in the in the locker room and somebody asked you know what uh, what was going through the players minds what were you thinking when when Joseph exited the game with an injury and Nagby was pretty frank about it he said uh, who's going to score and that's <laughs> that's a I think that's what everyone was thinking because Atlanta does have other guys who can score goals um, Brandon Vasquez has emerged as, as a pretty viable backup but nobody is Joseph Martinez Martinez scores at a clip that over his three years has not been seen at that level in MLS. and So, yeah, if, if, if he were to go down, it would be a big problem. Julie, Julian, I, I wonder what uh, New England was thinking. I mean, at, at first, I would imagine uh, they might have even been surprised that uh, he was out there, but now they've got to go up against him again when just a couple of weeks ago it, would, it didn't seem too clear that he'd be uh, ready for the postseason. Are they talking about that at all? Well, I think that, you know, from Bruce Arena's perspective, he sees a player like Joseph Martinez and knows he's a gamer and that, you know, there was some risk in maybe bringing him back too fast and then the uh, decision day game. Uh, man, say that uh, 10 times fast. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, he's going to come back uh, for the playoffs, obviously. Um, so for... Bruce, I think it's going to be about limiting Martinez as best as anybody can. Although, you know, um, like Chris said, he's scoring at an incredible clip. He's been very consistent about it. Um, and he's only not scored in one of the five games that he's ever played against New England. And that was in Foxborough. Uh, and it was a 0-0 game anyway. So, you know, that's going to be a player that they're going to zero in on. But at the same time, I mean, what can you really do to stop him? Not much. And if you look at the New England scoring sheet, uh, only three fewer goals this season than Atlanta United, but it's a much more balanced situation with Carlos Heel at the top, 10 goals and 14 and assists. Uh, what a season for him. And then uh, the uh, midseason acquisition, Gustavo Bo, nine goals and uh, two assists. Bo coming over when Arena got hired. We recall the record was 2-8-2. and two. When Brad Friedel was fired, just three losses in the 22 matches since. And uh, Bo, in particular, he's played in uh, 13 games to accumulate those statistics. So how important has he been? 
Yeah, honestly, I think you can look at both heel and bow and, and say that they're basically the motor of the team. Uh, I would say that the Revs passing game will still work without Gustavo Bow, but he's really been kind of the spearhead at the end of the offense. He's been remarkably consistent. He's scored some huge goals, especially late on in games for the Revolution. Um, he's arguably the reason why uh, they were able to make the late season push that, that they did. Um, and then with Heal, you know, he's he's kind of, uh, I, I would say he's the Carlos Vela or the Joseph Martinez on the team, you know, for the Revs without being an actual goal scorer. He's the guy who tracks back, helps them win back possession, helps them keep the ball, and then links up with guys like Teal Bunbury, Christian Pena, and Gustavo Bo. And, you know, it, it's tough to really say who you'd want to, you know, if you had to pick one to keep, um, it's it's really would be tough to say, you know, which one you'd, you'd rather have. But I would say that just because Carlos has been here longer than Gustavo Bo, and, you know, he's been able to do what he has on both sides of the ball, and been kind of an assist machine and a gold machine, I, I would say that he's maybe the one they rely on more. Yeah, and, uh, he's the only guy in double digits, so he does lead him in goals, but uh, four of those goals have uh, come from the pen penalty spot uh, as well. Uh, we are pr uh, previewing Atlanta against New England with Chris Furmeister uh, representing Atlanta for Pro Soccer USA and Julian Cardillo with the New England uh, revolution side of things i i guys i the, the the part of the intrigue to me of this is that they're playing again after meeting in the regular season finale and you've got two coaches and i'd like uh you both to respond to this uh, as uh as uh specifically as you can i don't know if, if there's uh, anything you can tell us further but i would think first uh, uh chris on, on the frank DeBoer side Knowing that this was the the opportunity to play New England again was 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 facing them. Do you think that he did anything tactically? I, we saw Pity Martinez didn't play. I don't. Were, were there any things going on? You think where Frank uh, Frank DeBoer didn't want to show all the cards uh, to Bruce Arena? I don't know if it was a matter of not wanting to show all the cards, but it is possible that he made some decisions in that game maybe to give Bruce Arena just something more to think about and something more that they would have to spend time on in training. Um, like you said, Pitti Martinez did not start. That is, that's a big question for me. It's certainly possible that, that DeBoer wanted to hold Pitti out um, and then br maybe bring him on in this upcoming game and, and so that the revolution would not be accustomed to playing him back-to-back. -back. It, it, you know, it could be a tactical wrinkle there, um, personnel wrinkle, but it's also possible that Frank simply does not trust Pitti Martinez in a one-game knockout playoff game. Um, Pitti, when he's at his best, he can create you know, incredible chances. He he's, can pull off incredible passes. But when he's at his worst, he is nothing less than a liability. And turning the ball over in midfield, turning the ball over before Atlanta gets into the attacking phase, which are things that DeBoer has harped on all year and talked about when, when Atlanta's not having success, those are the reasons why when, when they're not able to build successfully into the attacking phase, they allow transitional play from the opponent and that's where they get hurt. So I, I could see DeBoer leaving Pitti out of the lineup because he just doesn't him to, to properly build up in the attack. Um, there was also, in the second half of that game, uh, Atlanta switched from its 3-5-2 that it's been using for most of the past two months or so, uh, moved into a 4-3-3, three, three, 
then later in the game moved into a 4-4-2. Uh, it's possible that DeBoer would want to play these formations in the playoffs because they're a little more stable, a little more conservative, um, not as open to, to counterattacks. So, again, in a, in a one-game knockout format, I, I can see him being wary of giving up a cheap goal, and maybe he thinks that these formations, which he prefers a back four anyway, um, might work better. But it, it is also possible that he simply wanted to show those looks so the Bruce Arena has to think about them, and maybe he has no intention of playing them at all. We'll just have to we'll have to wait and see. I, I asked Justin Miram uh, this or last week if if they had been working on any back four tactics in training, and he said, uh, "I guess we'll find out." <laughs> yeah, no one's talking about that stuff. And uh, but before we get to Julian uh, about what he feels Arena was trying to accomplish uh, on Decision Day, uh, you talk about a back three, and certainly the most uh, critical part of that. Uh, and what makes it really work is Miles Robinson. So he was uh, he came back from U.S. Men's National Team camp with an injury, which I remember seeing. A, I don't remember who tweeted it out, but a photo, or it might have even been a video uh, of the team, the U.S. Men's National Team after the Cuba game, actually running a, a, a mini training session for the players that didn't play or had limited minutes. And apparently that's where he was hurt. And it... Uh, and just confirm that, Chris, and if that's true, uh, do we know what his status is for the game on the weekend? Yeah, it seems like that's what where the injury came from. Um, we do not know his status. It's I, I don't think that we will get much of an update at all this week unless he is unless this thing just heals up nicely and he's right back out in training. Um, but yes, that's also Miles Robinson. If Joseph Martinez is the team MVP and like the most irreplaceable player, Miles Robinson is second on that list. And you, you could make a good argument that that Miles Robinson could actually be Atlanta's MVP because, as you said, going to the back three and pressing high in that formation, which Atlanta has been doing, it is only possible because of Robinson's ability as a center back because he. He has the speed to cover a lot of ground. He is incredible in one-on-one -on -one duel situations. I mean, there's just, he does not lose a one-on-one -on -one duel at all. Um, he, he can mark opposing center forwards out of the game completely. And he basically allows Atlanta to play the attacking style that, that they've been playing. So if he's unable to go, I think that that would make it more likely that you would see Atlanta go to a back four um, because I just don't think that, DeBoer trusts his team to play um, a high-pressing back three without Robinson anchoring the back line. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a that's a huge question mark for Atlanta. All right, Julian. Uh, New England clinched their first playoff spot when they uh, beat New York City FC in the uh, penultimate weekend game, second to last, uh, that 2-0 win at Gillette. And then you wonder, was uh, – this uh, knowing that uh, no matter what happened against Atlanta on decision day, New England was set for seventh place. I mean, they knew where they were sitting, uh, whether they won or lost the match. So was this a dress rehearsal that you believe Arena may have been uh, trying to manipulate some things, trying to learn some things about Atlanta? What uh, what's the word? Well, uh, dress rehearsal was kind of the operative uh, expression last week when they went to Atlanta, just because. Uh, Bruce Arena was really hyped to go there to have that experience to play in Mercedes-Benz Stadium again and uh, just have a go at Atlanta before the playoffs. I think that's something that he was actually looking forward to. Um, I don't know how many other coaches would be looking forward to uh, you know, playing your first playoff opponent in the last game of the regular season, but 
you know, that's uh, that's the type of guy that Bruce Arena is, I guess. Um, and after the game, he was sort of saying how, you know, tongue in cheek that he had, uh, you know, a rabbit's pull out of his sleeve for the first playoff game. Yeah. Um, so whether that happens, I'm not sure. I actually think that while Atlanta might have a few different looks that they can, you know, pull out uh, for that game that they that they didn't have or that they didn't use in the regular season finale. Um, I think what you saw in decision day from New England is just about the best they've got. Um, I don't think that, that they're going to be – you're not going to see a team that's that much different. Now, one thing that was really interesting to me from a personnel point of view is kind of uh, – on the flanks. So there was a reporter in Atlanta who asked Bruce Arena uh, at the end of the decision day game, if he planned to kind of uh, use the lineup he did to go at Atlanta on the flanks. And um, on the left, he had Jaleel Anibaba, which in my view is, is kind of interesting to ask that question of Bruce because Jaleel Anibaba just doesn't have that much pace. And I don't see how you would exploit the flanks, but the player who does have, uh, a lot of pace on the flank is uh, Dewan Jones, who did not play. He didn't start, and he's kind of been the go-to starter on the left for most of the season under Bruce Arena. So I think if there's any sort of change we see, or if uh, Bruce Arena sees an opportunity to go at Atlanta on the flanks, I think it's going to be a change on the left, having Anibaba come out and Dewan Jones go in. I, I would think Julian and Chris, uh, you too on this uh, first Julian, but just being able to play a game at Mercedes-Benz in that atmosphere, obviously the playoffs is going to be more juiced. Uh, the, the the fans will be, you know, it'll be louder, I would, I'm would, i certain. There'll be more people. You'll, you're, I'm sure you're expecting one of those 70,000 crowds. So, uh, But that turf, maybe even more so, to play on that turf, which is a lot different than the other turfs that you see in the league, much different than grass. So I think from that standpoint, uh, that is an advantage for New England coming in, at least, you know, uh, an advantage in that they've they've experienced that. What do you think, Julian? Have they talked about that at all? Yeah, you know, the turf is not something that they like to really acknowledge. It's just sort of uh, kind of like uh, like window dressing, really. Um, well, they you know, play, they they well, have, they play at they, Gillette, which is, you know, right. you, you could and, say and is they, even and, worse. <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, it's got that reputation as probably, you know, one of the, the top two worst turf uh, fields in the league. Um, so I would say that Atlanta is probably a little bit of an improvement. And I think the Atlanta turf is probably a little bit newer as well. Um, but for them, I think they're just going to go out and try to play the game. And given that Atlanta plays there, I'm not sure how much it'll end up benefiting New England. Maybe it'll benefit New England more than another team in, in the East. But um, you know, like I said, uh, Bruce really kind of convinced the group that, that going to Atlanta for decision day wasn't the worst thing. And I think that even though they had a shot at six, they knew at the end of the day that they were probably going to go back to Atlanta for the round one game. And it was just a matter of um, it is what it is. And they just had to make the best of it. And, you know, while they did lose three to one, um, I do expect definitely a, a little bit of a different mentality just because it is a playoff game, like you said. Yeah, well, uh, New England didn't really hold back, that's for certain. And, and Chris, I, I wonder, you know, not necessarily statistically, but in your observation watching all the home matches at Mercedes-Benz, do you notice that uh, the road team coming in, maybe the second half, you could see that they're a little bit more used to the conditions and maybe they play at a higher level? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, you know, I don't know if that, 
it's hard to say. I, so many teams that come into Mercedes-Benz Stadium playing Atlanta United just simply bunker the entire game and hope to keep Atlanta off the scoreboard and hope to get a goal on the counterattack that will maybe be a one-no win for them or a one-one draw. And it honestly doesn't it doesn't usually work out too well because Atlanta had like a 12-1-3 home record this year. Um, so I, it's it's kind of hard to to I, I understand what you're saying, but it's hard to see if really teams do grow into the game like that because so many of them just right. <laughs> seem right. to for 90 minutes be looking to just sit back and try to limit Atlanta's chances, and so they're not they're not really coming out and playing. I mean, I, I think that a lot of teams that have come out and tried to play uh, it, it has not worked well for them. I, I remember when the galaxy came to town uh, several weeks ago, they actually, they, they stepped out and tried to play and Atlanta just shredded them. But in recent weeks, I think that Atlanta's worn down a little bit and, and new England played pretty well in this uh, decision day game um, looked pretty much even to me in the first half Um San Jose, when they came to town with their man marking system, um, that was really causing problems for Atlanta. And it wasn't until, you know, San Jose had an early red card. And if that had not happened, I doubt that Atlanta would have gotten all three points and I wouldn't have been surprised if they would have lost. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that the surface plays as much of a, of a role as, you know, you might think, cause I, I think that just a lot of, MLS players are accustomed to playing on a lot of different surfaces. And they, I think that like Julian was sort of alluding to it, just everybody sort of puts that out of mind. Um, it's funny when, when Atlanta hosted Monterey in the champions league earlier this year, um, that's what their players were very much talking about that. Like asking, you know, what's the difference between the Atlanta team that beat Monterey at Mercedes Benz stadium and, and the team that lost three nil in Monterey. And they're like, Oh, well they're used to playing on the surface. So I think <laughs> yeah. that, Teams coming from other leagues where basically every surface is, is a grass surface and a pretty good one, um, it would be a different. But, yeah, I think that most MLS players are just you, – you know you're going to play on all sorts of different surfaces, and so it's almost like that just isn't even a factor to them. Maybe more so is just the actual numbers of supporters there. So Mercedes-Benz, yeah. Atlanta, averaged 53,003, which is first in MLS – and 18th in the world, ahead of Liverpool and PSG, among others. It's really uh, fascinating what's happened there. And, uh, I, I mean, uh, I don't know if you've been in every uh, every stadium, uh, Chris, but uh, the atmosphere, and I've been there, and I, I have been in every stadium. I, I don't think in terms of noise uh, you, you get any louder than Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, when it's, when it's really roaring, it's – it's pretty impressive. Um, I, there's, it's funny. Uh, Atlanta fans can be pretty spoiled because you'll see on Reddit or on Twitter or something like some time after some games, some of the fans complaining about like, oh, it wasn't loud enough. <laughs> the stadium can can be cavernous. I'm like, I mean, a lot of a lot of MLS teams would like to have this problem that Atlanta fans are apparently dealing with. But, but yeah, it's it's an intimidating atmosphere. It definitely Atlanta's players talk all the time about how the the support and the noise can really really give them the boost that they need um and yeah with the, with the playoff game coming this weekend it'll be they will be opening up uh the third deck so you know you expect a crowd of around seventy it'll be that much louder 
Um, and dep- I don't know what the weather is going to be like, but last uh, on decision day, the roof was open, which I think probably takes a little bit of the noise out. But uh, the weather forecast I saw this weekend, it might be raining, so the roof might be closed. So that would make it even louder. <laughs> so, uh, Julian, with New England, you know, and Chris was talking about how teams uh, tend to come in and bunker down, try to play for the tie. I, I think I have this right. I looked at the last six road games for New England, uh, two losses and four draws. Now, I don't know if that would indicate that uh, they're they're trying to play for uh, just a result on the road and what that might mean in, in a playoff game. Obviously, ultimately, it means penalties. But uh, have you noted that on the road they're a bit different? Yeah, definitely. I would say that under Bruce Arena, the Revolution are a difficult team to play anywhere, including on the road. Um, they are more of a possession-oriented team than they were uh, earlier in the season. Um, right now, they're battling for you know at least 48% of possession, whereas uh, when the Bruce Arena era started, or you know during the Brad Friedel era, it was actually closer to about 35. So really, really, really big difference there. Um, and I think they're taking that possession-based mentality into road games, and it shows. And they'll do it against anyone. Um, they did it in Portland. They did it in L.A. Um, I think they were close to 50-50 uh, in Atlanta on decision day as well. I've got it and, right in front of me. It was uh, 49%. So, yeah, very yeah. very close. Yeah, Yeah, and, and then the other stat that was really interesting to me is, is that Atlanta only outshot them like 24 to 23 or 24 to 22 there were a lot of chances and and the revs were right there with them and you know ultimately i i thought that it it was definitely a a closer first half than it was in the second half but uh the revs did miss a few chances and i think that the final score really showed that um atlanta has more quality when it comes to finishing chances than new england does and also i think that new england's back line just isn't as strong especially in that type of environment as atlanta is but you know the the revs are coming into games now expecting to at least compete for a draw um which is saying something because a lot of these venues are notoriously tough to get results at uh now obviously they've never won at atlanta they've they've never actually even beaten atlanta united the club um so it'd be something for them to do it in the playoffs but um this isn't a team that's going to just roll over and die I, i think that the they're going to get a good game. Atlanta's going to get a good game out of, out of New England just based on the way Bruce Arena wants his team to play. And in that game, uh, Darlington Nagby opened up the scoring. Uh, he doesn't score many goals, but three minutes in, Gressel and uh, Joseph Martinez, the assist. Joseph Martinez scoring the game winner uh, after Christian uh, Pania uh, had scored just six minutes after Nagby's goal, and then Julian Gressel closed it out. Uh, with a little over a half hour to play. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty much what I heard. I think what I recall uh, some of the players were saying and some coaches and those observed the games that the first hour was uh, was very competitive and then maybe Atlanta um, really sealed it uh, over the last half hour. And if you uh, check out some of the quotes from the coaches, and we were talking earlier, Chris, about uh, if there'll be some changes. Uh, Bruce Arena said, quote, will obviously make some changes. And he's referring to this playoff game as opposed to decision day. And then Frank DeBoer uh, said, uh, I know what I heard. Bruce Arena is a coach that suddenly can make changes. So we'll have to be prepared for that. We have two weeks to do that. Uh, in your um, in your time covering Atlanta, do you think DeBoer is, has been effective in preparing his team for multiple possibilities? That's hard to say. It's hard to say, honestly, 
what kind of impact DeBoer has on his team, period. Um, because you look at the – when Atlanta has had the most success this year, it's been when they've been playing this 3-5-2 in the, in the home stretch of the season. And that was something that was essentially brought about by players openly complaining to media about the system that they were playing, that they did not like the system they were playing. They didn't like playing defensively. They wanted to attack. attack. And so DeBoer changed it. So it, I don't – So you think it think came – so, Chris, you think it came more from what was – what they said in uh, in the media, or maybe even social media, I don't know, but in the media versus individual meetings or group meetings with the the head coach, it was more that. I think it was. I, I think it was both. I mean, I, you know, the, the players and, and coaching coaching staff were certainly talking, and uh, the players were voicing their opinions in private, you know, in private as well. But but the fact that they were openly voicing those opinions to to the media really showed where they were in that situation and, and how dire it was that that Frank DeBoer, he needed to make some changes because, I mean, when you have Joseph Martinez, the face of the club, talking to reporters on the record in a media scrum and saying that, like, we cannot play defensively. We have to play attacking. This is not how Atlanta United is supposed to play. I mean, that's going to – that puts the manager between – you know, you've got to make a choice there because if you if you keep doing what you're doing and not having the success, which Atlanta was – was having success, but not what everybody expects uh, this club can do, then it's just going to keep working. So I, I do think that the players led this change in the middle of the year. Um, and DeBoer is just very much a he, – he preaches his system, and he's moved to the 3-5-2, and he, he, whatever he's playing, he wants it to be a system. And it's not so much about what the opponent does. Um, it's – he wants his players to play their system and to play it right, and then that will that will be what dictates the game. So I don't think that if Bruce Arena changes things up a lot, I mean, it's not really going to – I don't think that DeBoer will have a whole lot of, of answer for it because he's just going to expect his players to go out there and execute his game plan and, and execute his system that they've been working on. Um, and if he changes things up, that's one thing, but – but he he wants his players and his team to be the protagonist and to essentially not worry about what what the opponent is doing. Well, as far as uh, changing uh, how they played, I mean, there's going to be a statue of Joseph Martinez. There will not be a statue of Frank DeBoer, I, I don't think. So, uh, you know, Martinez has uh, earned uh, that status. Well, uh, gentlemen, I, I, I truly appreciate your time here, but I do want to get uh, your predictions and maybe uh, why you're uh, predicting uh, whatever you come up with. And, uh, Julie, let's start with you. You're on the road uh, with New England uh, against Atlanta, never have won in Atlanta. What do you think? Uh, I think that this is very much Atlanta's game to lose. Um, and I think that uh, the Revs are going to try to put on a good show, but ultimately this is, uh, this is Atlanta's. All right, Chris? I think Atlanta, if if the players show the mentality that they showed in the playoffs last season, they showed in the month of August this year when they won seven of eight games, won two trophies, playing with that mental edge, then then they will win comfortably. I'm not convinced that they have that mental edge right now. I think at the end of a long year, they just seem maybe a little worn out. But it is in Atlanta. Um, 
I will I will say that uh, Atlanta gets a a nervy nervy win maybe in extra time. Wow! All right, uh, Chris Furmeister uh, and uh, Julian Cardillo uh, covering uh, this game for Pro Soccer USA. Gentlemen, thank you so much and uh, enjoy the match. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Glenn. Appreciate it. The Atlanta-New England game kicks off the 2019 playoffs at 1 p.m. Eastern, Saturday, October the 19th. The third-seeded Philadelphia Union, they broke several team records this year, including total wins with 16, points with 55. Uh, the New York Red Bulls, they broke the single-season point record in MLS just last year while winning the Supporters' Shield. But does anyone remember LAFC eclipsed that mark this season? And the Red Bulls now stumbling into the playoffs in the sixth position in the Eastern Conference. Neither team uh, in top form heading into their East playoff opener. That'll be at Talon Energy Field, the Union's first home playoff game since 2011. Perhaps that will inspire them. Well, with us to break down this uh, turnpike showdown, Joe Tanzi, who covers the Union for Pro Soccer USA, and Dylan Butler, who writes about the Red Bulls for both Pro Soccer USA and MLS Soccer. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to you both. I guess we'll start with the uh, home team first, Joe. So Philadelphia, they enter the playoffs with just one win in their last five games. And here they were uh, in the penultimate uh, game of the regular season at Columbus with still a, a chance to maybe win the East. So how do you look at this? Uh, these games down the stretch? They come in having lost two in a row. Uh, how much of an impact do you think that'll have on uh, on this playoff game? So I think it just comes down to, are they healthy? That those last two games, you could tell the, the 45 minutes without Alejandro Bedoya in Columbus were, you know, not great. And you can say the same thing about the finishing without Casper Spilko, who picked up an injury uh, in warm-ups before the finale against New York City FC. So if you have... Those two guys back; those are, you know, arguably the two best players they've had in in that lineup all season long. Uh, I know you can make a case for McDonough and, and Wagner as well. For I've seen them get a few best eleven votes, but those are the two key cogs in, in midfield and, and up top. And if they're not at one hundred percent, it could be a little bit concerning for the Union, especially uh, with not everyone firing on all cylinders right now. I think the, the biggest concern is the defense. Uh, not too many clean sheets this season. Uh, it's a bit of a concern, especially going into the playoffs where, you know, one goal can be in. So uh, there, there are some concerns, but uh, the, from talking with the team over the last week, they are positive. Uh, they do have the home playoff game. They like the matchup with the Red Bulls. Uh, and they're, they're going to hope to have Bedoya and Spilko as close to 100% as possible. Uh, um uh, I think Wednesday uh, after the NYC game that they're going to play, that he's fully confident he'll have his, his full roster. So uh, that's a positive for them, but the form is very concerning. Yeah, and we're recording this early in the week before the Saturday, so uh, maybe uh, in training uh, this week get a better idea of uh, their full availability. But, yeah, the quote from uh, from Curtin was, uh, he, uh, I'll just say Katzper and Ali aren't going to miss this one. That, that was his quote, and you figure uh, Shabilko with f four game-winning goals and Bedoya, uh, and you've talked about it with me before, Joe, the captain, four goals, four assists. It's beyond the statistics. It's uh, what he brings to the field. Uh, Dylan Butler, what is the injury situation for the Red Bulls before we start breaking this down? 
Well, I mean, the, the certainty is that Admiral Tarek is out. Uh, he's had surgery on his ankle, which is, is, a, is a tough loss because he's that added um, piece in the central defense, you know. So if, if uh, the Red Bulls have a lead and, and they want to add a play with three center backs, uh, uh, Admiral Tarek would have been a great choice for that. He won't be in there. Uh, and uh, and Kyle Duncan is a big question mark right now. Um, unknown really at this moment his status so uh he left the match against the impact the the decision day match uh, with an injury michael amir Murillo, who has been uh as inconsistent as you can be i think uh stepped in for him uh, actually on the day did all right uh but he did have one he's, he's kind of prone to that one defensive blunder and that ended up with a ball in the back of his own net so I think uh, I think health-wise, uh, other than that, they're 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 pretty good. Brian White's working his way back. He played against the Impact. Um, he's a big question mark for the Red Bulls because it's interesting that the kind of uh, paradox, right, between you know Joe talking about the Union not having many clean sheets, but right now I think goal scoring is a huge issue for the Red Bulls because. Uh, Brian White working his way back from injury. Tom Barlow has been good up front, but not really a, a, a great at putting the ball in the back of the net. And then Brother Eck Phillips, kind of with that chronic uh, groin issue that he has, has been a shadow of himself. So uh, that is a huge concern. It, a lot of the pressure goes onto the shoulders of a Danny. Royer, uh, Josh Sims has played well since he's 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 come on on, on loan from Southampton, but he's struggled upon the back of the net as well. So um, I think goal scoring is going to be an issue for the Red Bulls, and and I guess you put Red Bulls goal scoring versus uh, Philadelphia defensive question marks. I guess it makes for an interesting matchup. Well, Dill, I got to ask you a couple of things here. First of all, if Bradley Wright Phillips right now and is deemed this week in training 100% fit. How do you not start him in a playoff game? Has he lost it that much? And then I want to ask you about Josh Sims next. But but BWP. Yeah, I don't think he's a, a ninety-minute player. Uh, for one, I think honestly at this point, um, I I don't know if it's in his career, but certainly at this point of the season, I think he's like a thirty-minute guy right now. So um, you need something. It's the sixtieth minute. If you're down a goal, I, I think you bring him in. Um, I think he's going to split the time with uh, with Brian White, but I, I, I think right now it's been pretty well established this year that Brian White's become the the uh, main striker uh, this year. The the high scoring American forward that's always uh, yeah. brought up that uh, he's a, a United States guy who uh, there don't seem to be too many of them at the top of the scoring charts uh, in Major League Soccer. And uh, Joe, uh, the the striker on the on the Philadelphia side, Casper Shabilko, and you brought him up as far as the injury. Very odd. The the whole thing was odd uh, prior to that game. I've never seen it before. During warmups, both strikers for either side, Philadelphia and New York City, with Eber suffering injuries in warmup. So what what is the nature of his injury? Is a foot injury? And it's his left foot, and, you know, he's a guy that strikes right, left, whatever he needs to do to score 15 goals this year. And without him, you, you wonder if Philadelphia can get it done. Yeah, so the initial report was it was a muscle injury, not a bone injury, which is big for him because he spent uh, a good chunk of two years before he started playing 
uh, consistently with the union dealing with foot issues. So that that came away as a promising development for the union. But even if he's not at 100 percent, you go down the list of of their scores and they don't strike a ton of confidence in you based on their recent form. I mean, Andrew Vooten still searching for his first goal with the club after signing himself. Uh, Marco Fabian hasn't lived up to expectations. Uh, you can talk all you want about the will he be back next year? Will he, you know, will he stay? Uh, he hasn't played much in general uh, in recent games, which is surprising given, you know, his, his stature and what they brought him in for. And then Fafa Pico has been playing well on the wing, you know, with it with his entire work rate, but the goals haven't been there. So. Who who scores without it? <laughs> so you guys, well, that, 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 that you guys are both asking the same. You guys are both asking the same question. You're not sure who's going to uh, finish things up in this uh, in this playoff game. And uh, yeah, and and Dylan, I was going to bring up. Well, let's let's talk. Uh, let's start. Let's stay with you, Joe and and Ernst Tanner. And, and you got to give him some credit. Uh, Shabilko has been added. Uh, Jamiro Montero. After watching him in person a couple of times, uh, how important he is uh, to the squad. Kai Wagner, the left back, uh, and then Fabian, you know, where uh, where he stands right now. We know he's got talent but uh, ha- has not been uh, as productive and not even in the lineup for Jim Curtin a lot of the times. But uh, So Tanner gets – I think he gets good marks, doesn't he, for who he's brought in? Oh, absolutely. And you, you look at how important some of these guys have been. Obviously, you spoke of the leading scorer, Montero, the engine room in midfield, and Wagner – uh, one of the, the best left backs in the league. I know that I saw a few people put him in for some best 11 votes. Um, the key, I think, here is, and we didn't see it against um, I think of the Red Bulls last time, Wagner needs to get forward more because when he gets forward more on the left side, it gives the you union know, a little more balance. And if he's stuck back trying to defend, uh, it, it takes away the, the union's width because in that 4 4 2 diamond, uh, or even sometimes in the four-two-three-one, the, if the fullbacks don't get forward enough, they kind of lose their production. And I think that also uh, we saw that in the, the decision day game against NYCFC, where they kind of looked lost when they were going out to the wings. And part of that has to do with Medoya's absence, because when he uh, goes out to the right side, when he tracks right in, in part of in either formation, uh, he provides you know a one-two or someone who could cross in or just a, a reliable option to to keep the ball forward uh, on that end. So if, if you have the balance there, regardless of which formation, uh, I think it puts a lot of pressure on the Red Bulls. But there have been instances where the Union haven't gotten their fullbacks forward much, and they put a little too much reliance on, on Montero and Bedoya in the center of the park to either drift out wide or, or create through the middle uh, with Medellin. And sometimes it just hasn't been there. Now, there have been plenty of occasions where it has worked and you know depending on what El Sino's role is I think he it should be as a 30-minute sub I don't think he is great as a starter he combines very well with Bedoya and the one twos on on the right wing Uh, Montero does well on the left opening up with with one of the forwards whether it be Pico uh, sometimes Brendan Aronson so there are options but you know when you look at the core of the roster the guys that Tanner brought in are incredibly important to how this team's going to go. And they might be the most valuable players on this team outside of, 
Madrinin and Bedoya are the only ones I think you could add that were here before that could probably fit that category this year. Yeah, and I want to get your opinion on Brendan Aronson, who just got a senior call-up, and he certainly has been influential. But you mentioned El Senio, and you know his maybe best game as, as a player with a union was against the Red Bulls, and that was at Talon Energy on June 8th. Uh, the Red Bulls went up 2-0, and then El Senio came in and did his uh, half-hour uh, substitution role. Uh, with uh, by assisting on the opening goal by Montero, and then he scored the tying game-winning goals, and this all happened in a 12-minute period off the bench. So this is a guy that can strike uh, quickly. And uh, Dylan Butler, so you, you look at the two games uh, in this series, so it's that one 3-2 where the Red Bulls probably felt like they had it, uh, had it won. And then later on, and it's the most recent game, although it was at Red Bull Arena, uh, the Red Bulls uh, knocking off Philadelphia 2-0, uh, one of seven times that Philadelphia has been shut out this season. And uh, so what do you make of uh, the series coming in, what's happened this season, and how it might impact the playoff game? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, Joe's talking about the confidence the Union have. I think the same could be said about the Red Bulls, despite their uh, stumbling into the postseason and getting the sixth seed and, um, I think it's a favorable matchup for them as well. Uh, they like they like playing the union. It, it's funny. One of the uh, more entertaining characters in the Red Bulls locker room is Kamar Lawrence. And uh, after the game at Red Bull Arena, you know, we were talking to Kamar Lawrence at his at his locker, and uh, he was pretty quick to talk about how the union wanted to play to to Papa Pico and. Uh, he's like, listen, nobody's outrunning me. He's he's definitely not outrunning me. He, you know, they they might have won the first game. I didn't play that game, so he was very, <laughs> very, uh, uh, you know, out out there about about how confident he was. Um, and and I think the interesting thing here, uh, and it's so different from the uh, I don't know the persona of these two teams is that the the union forever have been underdogs, right? Um, they've been that team that's been punching. They've been trying to get there. They get to the playoffs. They don't. They don't win in the playoffs. We saw it last year at Yankee Stadium. Um, they're forever trying to get there. And the Red Bulls have been to the the pinnacle. They've reached MLS Cup. They haven't obviously won. They've won three supporter shields. Um, the Union have played in the Open Cup final. But but uh, you know the Red Bulls have. Whenever it's Red Bulls Union, I would say nine times out of ten, you're saying the Red Bulls are the favorite or the union have something to prove right now that uh, that talk has completely shifted where the Red Bulls go to Talon on, on Sunday as the, as the underdog. And they love, they love that people are counting them out. Um, it, it's been, it, that was a big talking point under Jesse Marsh. Um, that sort of nobody believes in us mentality. Even, nobody gives us credit when we do well. Um, whether it's true or not, it, it it serves as motivation in the locker room. Uh, and then you've got the union team now. It's their best season ever. But can they do it in October, right? So, uh, so many interesting things here. But uh, I guess that's kind Dylan, of a long-winded way of saying it. I think it's a fascinating matchup. Yeah, I think it is too. But Dylan and Joe, have have you guys heard anyone say – that the Red Bulls, uh, they've, they've been counted out. They don't have a chance against Philadelphia because that's the, uh, you know, I, I read uh, the quote from, uh, I don't even know whose article it was, so forgive me if it was yours, Dylan, 
uh, that, uh, you know, Chris Arma said, everyone's counting us out. And to me, that is that is so Jesse Marsh. <laughs> so he certainly has been influenced. But Dylan, I say I read your preview of this game on MLSsoccer.com. And uh, when you you check out the series matchup at Philadelphia, the Union have six wins and 22 goals. The Red Bulls have six wins and 22 goals. So they're, uh, despite the fact that, uh, Joe, there's a little bit more uh, maybe energy, Italian energy now, the, the supporters have really uh, grasped onto this season, uh, the Red Bulls are not going to be intimidated by coming into uh, Chester, Pennsylvania, it doesn't seem. No, and it's funny that, you know, we, we say all these things about the Red Bulls because these are the same mantras the Union have used pretty much all season. When it comes to you know the we're the we're the underdogs you know they they've taken pretty much any any ounce of motivation they could get from anything whether it be <laughs> uh, the Arsenal game stuff or you know not being talked about enough uh, in the Sporters Shield race or in the Eastern Conference and uh, so I think they're using a little bit of that as well because there's going to be a perception a little bit around this team that you know they can't get the job done they they have it in the playoffs and they they're history in September and October going into every playoff game is not great. So they're going to use the same type of mentality as everyone's counting us out. Um, all that. The only difference as Jim Curtin said last week is it's a home game now and they are, you know, favored, but they're going to, they're going to use a, a similar mindset to kind of motivate themselves. You know, everybody's counting us out. We had a bad uh, finish to the season. Uh, you know, it, they haven't won a, a playoff game. Everything that the Red Bulls are using motivation-wise in that mentality aspect, uh, I assume most of it's going to be used in the union locker room as well, depending on how you know, they spend certain things. All right, you guys are getting me pumped for the game. Uh, as we close this, I want to talk about uh, the uh, the philosophy, the methods of, of both sides. And I brought up Brendan Aronson uh, earlier. And uh, this isn't an Ernst Tanner product, but this is a product of uh, of the academy. So, so Joe, and and he did get the senior call, but it looked like he wasn't rostered for Cuba. So, I'm not sure what will happen against Canada. But is uh, is he like the perfect example of the type of player they're 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 trying to cultivate in this uh, in this YMS academy? Oh, absolutely. You have you know the guy. I think it's five homegrowns maybe in the eighteen with between trusty. Um, Mackenzie Fontana, Real may make it as a as a fringe. He'd probably be a candidate to either make or miss the 18. And then Aronson, of course, uh, they've built up this this core uh, of young players. But now they haven't gotten to that that next next step. Now they've you know Trusty McKenzie were in January camp. Uh, the guys have been a part of U20 and U23 camps, but the first senior call up uh, for a true competitive game with Aronson is significant for how the union are developing players. And, you know, they're, they're more and more every international window on the radar of whether it be Jason Christ at the U23, uh, you know, the U20, U17, or even, you know, the full national team. There are eyes on these players. And I think that's only going to increase. I think Aronson has played well of late. I know the goals and assists, you know, that's the metric a lot of people use right away, but, his work rate on the field ha has been impressive. Um, I think if you're looking lineup-wise towards Sunday, maybe he gets a start, and then you see Elsino and, and Fabian come in to the 60th minute to either close the game or, or win the game. 
Um, but I, I would not be surprised if he starts Sunday against the Red Bulls. He deserves it. He's had one heck of a season. Uh, in my mind, the rookie of the year. Uh, he is the perfect example of how the union want to progress these guys up. And, you know, I, in my opinion, the way it's trending, I think he might be the first one of that group to, to fetch a transfer fee and, and go to Europe. And, and Dylan on, uh, yeah, and I believe Aronson, I thought was the best player for the union against New York city FC in that, uh, decision day match. But Dylan, you're, you're with a, a club, the New York Red Bulls covering them that have uh, prided themselves on their Academy, uh, uh, Red Bulls too, and and how those uh, players get elevated uh, to the first team. So they've been at it uh, a bit longer, and probably uh, what other than FC Dallas and RSL, the Red Bulls are, are right there in terms of player minutes uh, for their academy guys or or homegrown guys. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. I mean, you know, again, if you look at starting 11s, right? You figure Sean Davis will be in it. Brian White, we mentioned before, um, he'll be in it. Alex Muil has been in and out of the lineup. Omir Fernandez, um, he was an early shout for, for Rookie of the Year. He, he's kind of trailed off later in the, in the season. But, uh, but yeah, no, all, all these guys come up through the system. Kyle Duncan was originally a, an academy guy as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, I think in, in that sense, too, it's two teams that believe in the in that hashtag play your kids and um believe in their academy and uh you know you could make the same argument certainly although it's it's a, a younger one with nycfc now and um obviously the big difference i think though with nycfc and, and the union and, and the red bulls is at least the union and red bulls have that mechanism to get guys professional minutes uh right so they could play usl games red bull too and, and of course bethlehem steel um, so uh, that has also helped Aronson and Trusty, and, and obviously it's helped uh, a ton for for Barlow and, and White and, and all these guys for uh, for the Red Bulls. So they believe in, in their kids, certainly. And, um, uh, again, I, I think, you know, going back to this game, and it's, it's almost cliche to say it, but I think just because of the mentality of both of these teams, I think that, first goal is so massive, right? I think if Red Bulls get it, I think I think a lot of what Joe was saying before, that mentality, even in the stands, right, I think there'll be a lot of very nervous Union fans, kind of here we go again mentality. And if the Union get that goal, I think they're just going to be so, so energized and it's going gonna, it's gonna to calm a lot of those nerves and then put the pressure on the, on the Red Bulls um, for – you know, again, if you talk about hashtags, right? That's so Metro. That's uh, that's been their 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 mantra in in October. It feels like so. Um, I think I think that first goal, especially maybe if something happened in the first half hour, I think it really really um, sets up uh, th- this game really interestingly. Yeah, yeah. Being a single elimination knockout game, man, that makes it uh, even. Uh more nerve-wracking, uh, whoever concedes the first goal. Uh, we asked about Ernst Tanner, uh, the general manager, sporting director for Philadelphia, talked about him, gave him some high grades. What's your grade for Dennis Hamlet recent acquisitions? Maybe, I, you know, I, I mentioned Josh Sims earlier, Dylan, but then you also, you wrote recently about Mark Shetkowski, who was acquired last year. This is a guy under the radar, but maybe their most valuable guy. But how would you – Sims, no goals, one assist in seven matches. I don't think we could uh, – I don't think we could qualify him as a, as a major midseason acquisition. 
Yeah, no, and he's and he's a short term loan at, at that as well, right? So whether or not they are able to pull the trigger on on bringing him back, uh, it I think it speaks to maybe some storm clouds where you know were they not given the opportunity to spend? Did they not look at the right players? I mean, Red Bull. Red Bull Scouting Network is, is among the best, um, again, because of all the, the Red Bull properties and, and Leipzig and Salzburg, um, a tremendous scouting network. Um, and, again, I make reference to NYCFC, not unlike City Football Group, where, um, you know, you have that one database, right, where where you've got scouts all over the world and you can use that. I don't know. I, I, they have that database, but I don't know if they've, they've had – uh, either the willingness or or the ability to spend, and I think it's really hurt them. I, I, it's been it's been sort of a a knock on this team, and I don't know if it's against Dennis Hamlet or or above him, but just their unwillingness uh, to spend. You know, the, we've seen these the MLS salary uh, uh, for the players' union come out, and regularly the the Red Bulls are like bottom. I think certainly 10, if not below that, in, in, in dollars spent. So they have a designated player spot. They've not used it. They're obviously not, you know, they didn't use it this year. I don't Who knows if they're going to use it next year. Uh, so I guess if you talk about grades, I, I, a D maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't see how you could give a high grade to, to Dennis Hamlet when uh, certainly – other than homegrown acquisitions, which have been phenomenal, uh, you know, what have they really done outside of that? Kaku comes in, he makes a splash last year, and he's been relatively quiet this year. Um, and he's he's the other designated player you have. So I, I think, it's, to be honest, I think it's been poor. And, but on the flip side, and you mentioned the relationship with the Red Bull properties, Salzburg is where uh, Shotkowski came up uh, from or came from. Uh, and your recent story had talked about his versatility and how that's really come in handy for Chris Armas. Yeah, he's huge. He could play – he's played four positions in, in the midfield. Uh, I don't think we'll see him on the wing. Um, he's played as as like a double six. He's played as an eight. He's played as a ten in, in place of top two. I think that's one of the more interesting lineup decisions uh, that – that Chris Armas is going to have to make because uh, there's going to be an odd man out in that midfield, and it's going to be a guy who is used to playing regularly. So will that be Tchaikovsky, who has been so good at, at a lot of things that maybe don't show up on the stat sheet sometimes, right? Those uh, duels won and, 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 and winning tackles, and, and he's been the guy to take a lot of set pieces. Will it be Sean Davis, who's led them in, in minutes and, and um, has had to play that deeper role with the, with the absence of Tyler Adams. Uh, will it be Christian Caceres, who's also had to fill that role without Adams, or will it be Kaku that we just mentioned? Now Kaku comes off scoring a goal for Paraguay in an international friendly, so you've got to think he comes back with his confidence high. So um, I, think, I think lineup-wise, starting 11-wise, that's going to be one of the more interesting dilemmas, if you will, for, for Armors. Because as you said, look, this is a one-off. He's got to get it right. Hey, four four two diamond, baby. Diamond in the midfield. <laughs> hey, uh, all right, uh, your prediction, Dylan, and then Joe, uh, stand by. Uh, we'll get yours as well. Go ahead, Dylan. I just don't 
I think if Bradley Wright Phillips was himself, which he hasn't been all year, if, if they had that, even if Brian White didn't suffer that injury, if 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 they came in with with a with a guy like a like a Shavilko who's scored on a regular basis, I would maybe feel more confident in the Red Bulls' chances. Um, I just don't know where that goal is going to come from. It, it, Danny Royer has been the guy. He's been scoring a lot of PKs, but he hasn't scored a, a goal. Um, they've been they've been tough coming. To, they, it's been tough for him uh, in the run of play. So without that consistent goal scorer, I, I don't. I could see that I could see the Union maybe nicking a one nil, maybe a two nil if, if they get a goal late with the Red Bulls pushing up, but. Uh, I think I think the union prevail in on this one. All right, and uh, Red Bulls coming off a three nil loss at Montreal when they had a chance to win and, and host this uh, opening round game. All right, Joe, how about uh, Philadelphia? They're going to be favored in this one. They're home. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think out of the potential matchups, they could have faced the Red Bulls is the best for them. They're familiar with it. Uh, the Red Bulls, like like Dylan said, don't really have that primary scoring threat that really, really scares you, or as D.C., Toronto, and New England do. Uh, it's a home game. I think they'll be up for it. I do think uh, the first goal is massive. They can't be chasing, uh, especially with the mentality of, you know, everyone in the stadium. If they concede first, it's going to be, here we go again. You know, it's not going to be pretty if it happens. So I think the first goal is crucial. I think the Union – do get one in the first half. Uh, I think this is a game they can win. They should win. Uh, now they have to prove that they that they can. All right, he's Joe Tanzi. Pro Soccer USA covers uh, the Philadelphia Union. And also Dylan Butler, uh, who covers uh, Red Bull New York for Pro Soccer USA and MLSsoccer.com. Tremendous stuff, guys, and uh, thanks so much for joining me. That game will be played Sunday, 3 p.m. kickoff Eastern at Talon Energy Stadium, where the Union tied their mark for home wins with 10, equaling the single-season mark from 2017. For the right to play the top seeds, New York City FC, its 2017 MLS Cup champion Toronto FC, seeded fourth, hosting fifth-ranked D.C. United at BMO Field. Offering their insight uh, with us here on frame, uh, the TSN analyst for Toronto FC, Christian Jack, who can also be heard Monday nights on Premier League Live on Sirius XM FC Channel 157 from 7 until 10 Eastern. And Emily Olson, who covers uh, DC United for Pro Soccer USA. She can also be heard on the United States of Soccer with Jason Davis on Sirius XM FC. That's each day from noon to 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, fantastic to have you both here. Christian, TFC clinched a playoff spot when they drew LAFC 1-1 on September the 21st. And uh, with the 1-0 home win on Decision Day over Columbus, they earn the fourth seed in the East. They get to play at home at BMO. And they're now unbeaten in their last 10. So all indications are that this is a team in a very good form. Is that true? Yeah, it's certainly a team that arrives in the playoffs in good form. Um, it's, it's an interesting team because it's obviously they're clearly playing their best soccer at the right time. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I do feel like there's a collective feel uh, within the group, and even those of us around covering it, that there's still we feel like there's still another gear. Um, whether they get there or not, it remains to be seen. You know, that's the, the nature of MLS playoffs. But 
even though they've gone on this unbeaten run of 10 games, as you mentioned, that some of the games that I felt like watching them when they've drawn the games, they really should have won them. You know, they've given away silly leads or given away bad goals at, at crucial moments. So I don't feel like they're, they're completely content with this. But as you said, you know, job done. They got a home game, which is quite frankly the least they should be doing with the amount of money that they spend. Um, the relief was there to get that home game. And now, having, you know, get that home game inside their own stadium, they'll feel very confident that they can get it done, having won um, a lot of big games in that stadium over the last three seasons. Well, Christian, uh, Josie Altidore left that uh, decision day match uh, with about 20 minutes left with an injury. Uh, he had been summoned in by Greg Berhalter to the U.S. men's national team, but uh, did not report because of this injury. What can you tell us about it and, and what his status is going to be for the weekend? Yeah, this is going to be the major storyline. No question about it. Um, covering this team I was with, with Josie last week and Greg Vanny as well. You know, both of them feel confident that they are able to play. Now, whether that means they will is another thing altogether. You know, Josie Altador has got a quad strain. It is a new injury. It is one that he hadn't suffered before that you mentioned that, meant that he got injured in the, in the, in the incident on, on the sixth against Columbus. Uh, with the tackle was by Jonathan Mensah. And, you know, they are con consistently monitoring this. You know, there's a lot of factors to get into this. Altidore has, has, has got a lot of reference points in the past few years where he's had a lot of injuries for TFC and found a way to get ready for big games. But, I know, the, the, the one thing that you need to mention here is that there's another game that they believe that they're going to be playing. Now, whether they will or not is another thing, but can Josie Altidore be ready to play that game on Saturday against DEC United and then be ready for the New York game? You know, is it one thing to look ahead to that too soon? And is it another thing to think about, well, how, you know, if we have to play two games in a week and he can only play one, what can we do? Uh, and what does that allow Greg Vanny to do if he doesn't play? Because he is playing the 4-3-3. He is connected to Osorio, Delgado, and Bradley in midfield. They have to find a way to play Pozuelo. He's got these other, you know, the, the other wingers right now have come in on a tap in Benazay and Gallardo. He can't find a place for all of them. So there's lots of question marks about the way that that front three lines up. But, of course, Altidore right now, as we know, questionable um, for that game with a quad strain. And I guess we won't really find out until 24 hours or even the day before whether he can definitely go. Yeah, and the question always is, can Toronto, especially this season, it seems, can Toronto FC win without Josie Altidore? I mean, it's interesting because you also asked the same question to the U.S. men's national team. But uh, yeah. And when I say win, maybe not just this particular game, but can they win a, an MLS Cup without Altidore? Well, no, they can't win an MLS Cup without Altidore. For me, that's clear. You know, what I will say is they can win a game. Um, you know, they're 4-4-4 four, four, and four this season in the 12 MLS games he didn't play, you know, due to injury and, and international duty. So they have found ways to win games when he's not there, um, whether that be Patrick Mullins, uh, who's clearly uh, a replacement for Altidore in that position, but is more of a bench player, whether they play Pozuelo as a nine because they played him there before with wingers who can run beyond him and almost play as a false nine and allow that space to kind of open up and get Pozuelo in a central area, which they can't do right now with the aforementioned midfield three. Um, so their ability is to win games without him. Of course, it's there. They've got game breakers there. Uh, but for me, if they're going to win an MLS Cup, they need Josie Alter on the field. You know, seven goals in 12 playoff games, paid money to score big goals in big games and has delivered. Won the game, obviously, for them against Seattle in the 2017 MLS Cup with the crucial goal. Uh, prior to that against Columbus was enormous. The, the year before, the, the journey to the final when he scored in every game apart from the final when they lost on penalties. So, um, you know, the, the form is there. You know, in big games, he's delivered. Um, and they're going to need him. They're going to need him fit and healthy if they're going to make a long 
run here. So, Emily, uh, on the D.C. United side, they're unbeaten in five matches, all clean sheets coming uh, into this game. But if I go back to the Decision Day match with FC Cincinnati, is it anything but a disaster that they play to a scoreless draw at home against the most poorest team, I, I suppose, in MLS history, statistically, conceding an average of over three goals per game? So how do they look at all that? I mean, it was definitely not the performance DC United wanted on that last day, but it shows exactly the form that they're currently in, which is that their defense is superior and their offense can't find goals. Um, Wayne Rooney wasn't featured in that game. Ola Kamara still dealing with a hamstring injury. And then you go to um, Quincy Ameriqua, who is not really a prolific goal scorer in MLS. So they're really struggling to find um, the back of the net. They did turn it around. You mentioned those clean sheets towards the end of the season. They had a moment uh, before the Montreal game when this kind of whole defensive um, excellence started where they kind of came together, told each other um, what the team called their truths and kind of had one of those locker room chats where you just get it all out there and, and work together. And it seemed to really help the defense. They went on and scored six goals in their last five games, but um, three of those came against Montreal. So they're really, again, struggling to find scoring, but kind of hanging in there based on their defense. And the fact that they couldn't put away the game up two men for 45 minutes against the worst team in MLS, um, which caused them to lose that home field advantage that was all but in their hands uh, definitely doesn't help them going into Toronto. And in that Montreal game, Ola Kamara had two of the three goals. Now this hamstring thing, is that keeping him out of this match? And uh, and then how does Wayne Rooney fit into the equation? I mean, he's the leading scorer. He leads the team in goals and assists, 11 and 8. So uh, what is uh, how is it going to be configured against Toronto, do you think? So Kamara's still working back from um, his injury. I, I'm not quite sure, certain just yet. Um, I'll, I'll talk to the team later today and figure it out. But, um, yeah, so that's a concern. Whether he comes back or not, um, you, you want him fully fit, so you would hope he would be working in these next two weeks, getting back to full fitness. The thing with him, though, with Kamara, is that he came to this team not fully fit. Um, he, he came midway through the season after not playing in China um, and, and wasn't quite 90 minutes just yet. So he's not that, that go-to ready-to-score-in-playoffs option. And then for Wayne Rooney, he has to factor in. He missed that last game due to yellow card accumulation. Um, and he will he will be a factor. He's still trying to kind of end this this MLS adventure that he's had on a high note. Um, so DC United will have to look to them because again, like I said, um, Quincy Ameriqua is the the other option when you look at that. So Wayne Rooney, yeah, this is uh, the culmination of his uh, MLS career. I mean, could end. Uh, on the weekend or could continue uh, what is his motivation do you think uh, yeah it's uh, and how big a distraction was Wayne Rooney the news that he was leaving and heading back to England I mean he does lead the club in the statistical categories but you talk mm -hmm. about yellow card accumulation he's also had a couple of red card ejections so w where are we at with Rooney and his uh, leadership and and uh, and his prowess as an attacking player I mean can he do it is he does he want to do it yeah, I mean, as far as his motivation, that's not a question I can answer. Rooney can answer that. But 
I, the team has consistently said, you know, it's not going to be a distraction. When it first happened, they all said that uh, Rooney would show it on the field, but then he gets, um, he has two red card suspensions. He has the yellow card accumulation. He deals with a little bit of a, of a respiratory injury. So uh, illness. So there's a lot that went on since that secondary transfer when he uh, basically notified the team eight days before the news went public that he was leaving um, to the end of the season. So as much as the team says it, it isn't a factor, it's kind of hard not to be because he hasn't been present. He, he hasn't been um, what we saw last year, which to be fair, a lot of it came from the fact that DC United was playing consistently at home and that he was able to just stay in DC and, and provide where he needed to be. Um, so the team has kind of had to shift into uh, a different form of focus. And I think that's why you see the defense coming into coming into focus and coming into their strength because the the offense kind of doesn't have that leadership that Rooney provided previously in this season and, and last season. So it's really come from center backs like Frederick Briant and, and Steve Birnbaum to to collect this team and kind of focus it. And and I'm sure that's why a lot of the the success in the the last stretch of the season has come from them. Yeah, I want to get back to the defensive side, Brilliant, Bill Hamid, and also uh, see what's going on with Lucia Costa. But uh, Christian, as we head back uh, to the Toronto side of things, if you look at the season, through the first 16 matches, TFC were on 19 points. So what were the problems at that point, and, and how did they work their way out of it? I mean, during that 16-game stretch, it also included a pasting of New York City FC 4-0. It was the third match of the season, so it's a long time ago. But uh, how did they solve all this? Well, I mean, I would go even further beyond that. You know, they were in disarray through 16 games. You know, you mentioned it. The, the game that, that that you're alluding to there through 16 games, they'd lost at Dallas. That was that, that, that point was eight games without a win. Um, then they got the, the, the narrow victory over Atlanta, that crazy game when they got a penalty late, then Atlanta got a penalty with the last kick of the game after the final whistle had happened. So it looked like that was going to be extended to nine. Pitti Martinez smashes the penalty over the bar, and they actually win the game. Then they draw in D.C., so it could have been 10 games without a victory. Then they went to L.A. Galaxy on July 4th and got beat there by his last time with two goals, so it could have been 11. Um, so really, through 19 games, they only had 23 points. Um, and it was really after that when it started to turn around. Now, there's two different reasons for that. One is defensively, they were far superior because Omar Gonzalez came by. And second of all, was after Gold Cup, there was, a, there was just a singular focus then. Was they, got the, they got the players back from Gold Cup when you think about Azorio coming back with Canada, and, you know, obviously Michael Bradley and Altidore. Um, Omar Gonzalez arrived back following that game uh, in the Gold Cup, and, and his first match was at Montreal following the Gold Cup when they completely dominated that game. And that was an enormous match for them because, as I said, they'd only won one out of 11. It was that narrow victory over Atlanta, um, a stretch all the way back to the beginning of May. And you think about the season that had been going on, they'd only really beaten teams that were really poor at that time. Um, and, and again, it looked like a, another version of 2017, sorry, 2018, which was a terrible defense of their crown from 2017. So there was a lot on the line, a lot on the line. People's jobs were on the line. People's reputations were on the line. The future of the club was on the line. They went out and sport to spend money. But there was a real commitment on the field to be defensively better. Um, and when you look at it, they've been far superior since then. You know, uh, there was that one blip against Houston at home where Greg Rani rested a lot of players. 
um, and has since admitted that that was probably a mistake when Bradley and all those guys were rested against Houston. But other than that, Omar Gonzalez has come over and defensively they've made a lot, a, a far better commitment. The relationships on the field, Mavinga and Omar Gonzalez are better. Since then, they've, they've really worked together in winning the midfield. There's been big games where they've gone to New England, who were very good at the time and should have won that game. They were winning 1-0 and the goalkeeper error at the end when Westberg let the ball go through his through, through his arms. Um, they were they were very good, as you know, at Yankee Stadium on September 11th. Pozuelo missed a penalty. They should have won the game 2-1. LAFC, they dominated them away from home and should have been up more than that. And Bella scored in the 95th minute after the, with the penalty. So, as I said, they've let points get away, but the performances have been there. And Glenn, to answer your question, it's really because of the defense. They've won the battles in midfield with Azorio, Delgado and Bradley. That is a midfield three that they have to pick together. And then, as I said, Omar Gonzalez has worked a lot better to get the best out of Mavinga, who can be quite aggressive, uh, and you, you need that calming presence next to him. Yeah, Gonzalez coming from uh, Guadalajara. But the goalkeeper, so new keeper, Quentin Westberg. And I know he had a couple of big saves on decision day against Crew SC, which was important to get this uh, home field advantage. But I'm wondering, what happened to Alex Bono? I mean, he was the starting keeper when they won MLS Cup in 2017. I, I mean... I, I know he, uh, he got in uh, when uh, Westberg was injured once or twice this season, but w- what happened to Bono? Yeah, Alex Bono started the season as a one goalkeeper um, and played seven of the first nine. But So the problem that Alex had at the time was that, he, you know, t- to be fair, he, he made a couple of big mistakes and he's admitted that, and he didn't have a very good defense in front of him. And just, you know, the whole thing where he wasn't at his best, TFC were not at their best. You know, defensively, as I said, they were, they were nothing short of a shambles last season. And they went out and got Lawrence Simon, and they thought he was the guy to come in, and they realized that they couldn't play Simon and Mavinga together. So they were shipping goals. Bono was not, his confidence was getting lower. And then when they tried Quinton Westberg and gave, gave Quinton Westberg a chance, they started to understand that they, they, the relationships on the field were getting a little bit better. He's more of a leader back there, which they didn't necessarily have before Omar Gonzalez came in terms of a vocal presence, which is what Greg Vanny liked. And then his distribution improved as well. You know, Westberg was able to distribute the ball a little bit better. So just a, combina- a combination of a number of factors. And obviously a poor form at the start, a little bit of lower confidence for Bono. And then, as you said, once Westberg came in defensively, got a little bit better. They liked his leadership qualities. And then, as you said, Alex didn't really get another look and just played 15 minutes on, in game 33 in Chicago when Westberg left with a little bit of a, 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 a vision problem after getting a knock on the head. So, um, yeah, it's Westberg's team. It's his team right now, and um, Alex Bono has to wait for his chance or um, wonder what his future will be. Christian Jack uh, from TSN helping us uh, with Toronto in this uh, match coming up against D.C. United. Uh, Emily Olsen, who uh, covers... Uh, D.C. United for Pro Soccer USA. The goalkeeper at D.C. United doesn't lack confidence. We know that, Emily. Bill Hamid. But (laughs) we've talked about the clean sheets, five in a row. Uh, He's among the league leaders in in shutouts uh, total. Uh, So Hamid, and he's, I I guess uh, this is a separate question, but it doesn't seem like he's even involved in uh, the decision for Greg Barhalter to bring him in uh, with the U.S. men's national team. But tell us about Hamid and that back group, including Frederick Brillion, another guy well under mm-hmm. the radar, but I saw he was MLS Team of the Week three straight weeks. And tell us about those guys. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about Bill Hamid. No one has accused him of lacking confidence ever. He's he's one of the most um, 
vocal leaders on DC United's team, especially when it comes to being on the field. He has those five clean sheets thanks to the defense in front of him, as well as the the big saves when he needs to make them. He also he's tied with um, the most clean sheets, fourteen, um, with Brad Guzan. And and like you said, he's not really currently in the conversation um, with Greg Burhalter in the national team right now. All that only adds um, to the motivation and the mindset of Bill Hamid, who kind of uh, at times feeds off of that, feeds off that uh, maybe that um, chip on your shoulder kind of mentality or you against the world mentality. So as far as what he's focused on right now is DC United and the playoffs and making sure they succeed there. Um, He has been since coming back um, from his short trip abroad to Midland, he has been just a leader once again and, and slipped right back into where he was for almost a decade with DC United coming up as their first homegrown player. And really, the, there has been few things certain about DC United over the years, but one of them is Bill Hamid and his performance for for that team. It just, when he wears that jersey, there's a different kind of... Um, confidence and things that work for them and so yeah once again he has been one of the the certainties about dc united and dc united a team june 1st i look back june 1st they were in first place of the east following mm-hmm. a 1-1 draw with san jose at audi field then there's a stretch in july until the end of august one win in seven five of those were losses a 5-1 thumping at home at audi field against philadelphia and it leads me to Lucci acosta who, uh, mm-hmm. together with Wayne Rooney, they had this thing going. But uh, now how did that uh, come to, a, well, I don't want to say to a close, but you look at Lucia Costa. His last start was August the 24th uh, in a loss mm-hmm. to Philadelphia. And now he just comes on. I, you look at his most recent games, three minutes, one minute, 12 minutes. So w- what happened there? Well, there's a couple of things that are in play there. First of all, the the tandem that you're talking about, Lucharu, as it was dubbed uh, last year, a lot of that was kind of something that was magical that wasn't seen before at DC United when Wayne Rooney came in halfway through the 2018 season and was just able to instantly take off a bunch of pressure that Acosta was bearing from just being that that both a player that they needed to be creative and produce at the same time. So when Rooney came in, it relieved that pressure. He was able to move freely and they both had extreme success with it. Uh, but it's also very easy to close down once you see it. And that's what happened um, in the 2019 season. There was a couple of things that happened in the off season, which I'll get to as the second point for Luciano. But as far as other teams figuring it out it's pretty easy you shut down uh, Rooney you shut down Acosta and you kind of close off this this offensive um, partnership that they've been going with and, and and cause other players on the wing to have to step up and it's it's a little bit easier to maintain at that point and then the other part of it is it's you know he had those ties to PSG whether it was how much confidence PSG had at the time with the the offseason interest in him and the his late night uh, trip to Paris in the middle of preseason and then having to come back and play in MLS again. I mean, that, that weighs on a player a little bit, but that combined with the fact that teams were figuring out him and Rooney, it, it just caused him to kind of fall out of production 
and towards the end of the season, it was time for DC United to move on and figure out how they were going to fix that problem. And it, it kind of just pushed him to the side. It wasn't about uh, making a point or a statement or anything. It was he kind of stopped working in, in DC United's favor. And, and something that, that helped out was bringing in uh, Felipe from Vancouver, who allowed the defensive midfield to kind of share up and that defense to open up. And then you can play with um, a Ulysses Segura and a Paul Ariel on the wing, and you can move um, the young Argentine store, star, uh, Titi Rodriguez, centrally, Lucas Rodriguez. And it kind of, it just, it happened that Acosta fell out of favor because he didn't fit into the formula anymore. Um, and it was just a product of, Things needed to change, and the production wasn't there, and so he found himself on the bench. Christian, it's always interesting when uh, when players are, are rumored, and this was beyond a rumor. He had taken a flight, Acosta, but you know, a number of players. I think of Aaron Long uh, being distracted by this uh, talk of an MLS or the Red Bulls not agreeing to uh, to a particular transfer fee, and Aaron Long is still in MLS. But it takes a special player, maybe a coach, an organization to to really work through that comfortably so that you can, you know, continue to try to progress as a team. That's tough, isn't it? Yeah, no doubt about it. Look, you know, I think whenever you've got, I think Emily is a great word, and I think formula. You've got to find the formula, the, 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 the system on, on the field um, for the best that suits you as a team and then figure out whether that player fits in there. And, you know, it's not it's not completely the same, but it's a similar situation that happened at Transfer FC with their star player in Alejandro Pozuelo. You know, look, Pozuelo didn't look to, to leave, but at, at the end of the day, Ben Olsen has to find where, in his 4-2-3-1, where's the best position for Luciano Acosta right now? And if Acosta's not working hard for that team, and you think about the commitment that they've got defensively, and they are a really good team defensively, very difficult to break down, everybody committing, defending from the front, and if Acosta's not buying into that, then the whole thing is just going to collapse. And he's obviously, you know, the other, the other teammates are looking at that. You know, you've got some really clever guys on this team, some veterans and obviously young players as well. You think about Paul Ariola, you know, who is obviously still quite young in terms of his age, but has been so experienced as a footballer. If he sees that Acostas can continue to get picked in that number 10 role and isn't working hard, what kind of does that message send to him? And that's the same thing that happened at TFC with Pozuelo. Pozuelo has been tried as a number 10, has been tried as a number 9. He's played in the midfield three wasn't working hard enough defensively, then got dropped for an enormous game in August at home against Montreal. Okay, came on at halftime when they were, when they were losing and needed, were needing to turn it around when Boyan scored the goal um, to, to come back and turn things around. But then really has just been trusted to play out wide, not even a natural position. And why is he playing out wide? Mainly because he defensively isn't working hard enough for the team right now. Now, there's a number of factors of that, you know, He's got to figure out what Greg Vanny wants defensively. He's also, by the way, played about 75 competitive matches this season because his season extends all the way to the beginning of last season for Europe when he was in Belgium. So is the fatigue involved in that as well. Um, but these are what these are the big decisions the coaches are make. And Vanny has obviously made a decision on Pozuelo. Ben Olsen has been a bit more ruthless with Luciano Acosta, and that's I think suits his personality. And Benny Olsen will not suffer fools. So. I commend him on that, but it's interesting to see whether, you know, they're down 1-0 at halftime, for example, on Saturday. Does he go straight to Acosta in a, in a must-win game? Because, you know, it could be the, the final swan song for both Rooney and Acosta in D.C. 
Yeah. And, and it's Glenn. Yeah. If you, I just, there was this Christian touched on it a little bit mentioning Paul Ariola, um, and, and the way that Ben coaches and Ben likes players that are going to buy in and, and be gritty and, and grind out wins for this team. Paul Ariola has played just about everything, but striker and goalkeeper for this team. He has slotted into that number 10 role, um, which is not something that he's used to. He's moved more centrally from the wing and really, uh, like Christian was saying that, that Acosta wasn't doing is buying into defending from the front and then contributing on the attack. And he's not as creative. He's not as good on the ball as Acosta is, but when it comes to how this team has found success, grinding out wins, he is the player that fits into it. Um, and he has been crucial and it might be a little bit of a concern because he is in Toronto right now with the national team. And I'm waiting for confirmation on whether he's going to, fly back for one training session and come back with the team um, and, and figure out kind of where his legs are. He did pick up a knock in the game for the U.S. against Cuba. Yeah, leave him up there. Leave him up there. Uh, but where, Christian, you have to, you look at Pozuelo again. I understand everything you're saying, but where, where would Toronto be without him? 12 goals, 12 assists. I, he's a finalist for Newcomer of the Year. That's just a, a thing. That's an award. But I... I called his first game, New York City at Toronto. I was at 4-0 game we talked about. I have, in my time doing this, I have not seen a better individual performance by a player in an MLS match. Two goals and an assist. I mean, just remarkable, his distribution and his reading of the game. Uh, so do you think it's been solved now that he combines that with the effort necessary to play both sides of the ball? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it was as you mentioned, back in March with his debut, it was as, as good as it gets. You know, he was absolutely magnificent at that point. Um, but at that point, you know, TFC was still trying to find the formula again. You know, they they, they it was simple to play four four one one, let Pozuelo have a free, free roll behind Altidore um, as the number ten, and he and he blossomed in that point. And him and Altidore have got a good relationship. Now you have to remember that that, that this is a relationship that Altidore had with Jovinko that, you know, you don't just get by playing with a player for a long time. You, you, some players just never have that kind of cues where they just know the run to make, the reference point that they have. They, they see the play developing before it even happens. And Altidore and Javinko had that. And, and Pozuelo and Altidore have that as well. But the issue that they've got is that they feel like Pozuelo can sometimes be just too, a little bit, just to take a too long on the balls a little bit too much hold the ball a little bit and not necessarily make that pass as quickly as they would like. So there's been growing pains. Look, the stats say everything about you alluded to it, even though some of them are quite a few of them are second assists. The stats say what a year he's had. Um, but I still think that they're, they're still trying to find out where this jigsaw piece fits. And it's a big piece. They know that, but where, where is it fit and how do you find the pieces around it? Um, and as we said, we go into this game with question marks about Altador. And because of that, we go into the game about question marks about where Pozuelo plays as well. Does he play on the right, which is more of a preference than on the left? Or does he play through the middle um, if Altidore is not able, available to go without Mullins? So, of course, it's been a, it's been a very good season for them um, together. But I still feel like they feel like there should be there's something more, another level to go, which, again, is the common theme around the team, not just Pozuelo. All right, Christian. Well, uh let me get your uh, prediction on this, and then Emily, you'll be next, uh, and you know, uh, maybe uh, give some insight as to why you're, uh, if you're picking Toronto, if you're picking DC. Uh, let me know. What do you got? Wow, I haven't really thought about that. I'll, I'll say, <laughs> you know, why not? 
you know, for predictions, I always think it's a lot of fun. So why, I'll, I'll predict penalties. Um, why not? Let's go with nil-nil penalties. Uh, look, both teams are really difficult to break down. You know, I have um, – this is more of a bigger point, Major League Soccer-wise, a little bit. I mean, I really like the two-legged playoff games prior to this year. I understand that a lot of people like the one-leg games, uh, and I'm willing to give it a chance. I really am. I do have a little bit of concern collectively for MLS at these games because they mean so much and they, they, they could be really tight. And, and, and that could be the same again. You know, it's very, very difficult to break down. Uh, and if it does go that way, and I know that's on the mind of TFC already, uh, they're already working on penalties because they've lost three penalty shootouts in major finals now so with the Champions League final, the MLS Cup as well, the 2016, and then the recent Canadian Championship against uh, Montreal last month as well. So um, it'll be tight, it'll be difficult to break down. But I will say, you know, this is not a prediction. I just think this is a complete fact. I think the pressure is on TFC. I know on MLS Bucker right now there's a list there of, a, of a, a long list of rankings of pressure teams and DC United are above TFC. I just don't agree with that. I think I know that the Rooney's last season there's a lot to li- on the line there, but when you're at home and you spend the amount of money that they do, um, they need to go on a run here. They need to win the game, and and I think they should they should win the game, um, but we'll see. Yep, and I was you know I I really did want more of your keys to the match, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll t- we'll take the PKs and the the key there would be for the game winning PK. Pozuelo is standing there. Will he do the Penenka? You know that's that's. I don't uh, think so. I don't. He, he, look, he did it once, and then he did it again later in the season after he said he wouldn't do it, and he did it that he did it later in the season because um, he'd missed his second one at Yankee Stadium, and he wanted to have another go against Colorado. So. I think now he's done it twice in the year. I think the goalkeeper might expect that. What Pozuelo is very good at is mentally about penalties. I spoke to him a lot about this. He knows uh, where to go. And so, uh, look, when he, if he's got a penalty in a shootout or during the game, I, I, and Bill Hamid will know that he's gone down the middle twice, um, I think he'll be going precise to one of the posts. Uh, I believe he's uh, five of six from uh, the spot, so uh, pretty reliable. Emily? Is it enough that Wayne Rooney may be playing his last match in MLS and with DC United? That that motivating factor. Do you do you think that the the team is motivated in addition to Rooney and and uh, that will work well for them? Yeah, I don't think it's a question of motivation with this team. I think it's more of a question of can they figure out how to score? I mean, uh, you mentioned penalty kicks. It would be. I mean, that's where DC United was last season, and that was an incredibly exciting game in in. Uh, against Columbus at Audi Field when they got to host. There was a lot of energy. Um, Nick DeLeon, who, you know, we know where he is now. Um, and Nick DeLeon scoring the tying goal in extra time and then going to penalty kicks and being the one to miss. I mean, it was crazy. So I'm hoping maybe something just as crazy and exciting um, coming from this game. But I don't see it going to penalty kicks. I think DC United can remain defensively sound um, I think there's a big question mark of and you talk about Josie's health and, and what he can contribute but I I'm kind of feeling that Toronto has a little bit of the edge and that it might be a 1-0 um, in Toronto's favor all right that's Emily Olson she'll cover this match uh, for Pro Soccer USA uh, as an analyst for TSN Christian Jack will do the same thanks very much to you both and uh, enjoy the weekend Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Glenn. There you have it, a comprehensive preview of the MLS Cup playoffs Eastern Conference opening round matches. Special thanks to Chris Furmeister, Julian Cardillo, Joe Tanzi, Dylan Butler, Christian Jack, and Emily Olson. On the next episode, a Western Conference playoff preview.
This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. 